tug at the candlemaker's lanyard, you wayward Tanyas. Welcome to the Blind Boy Podcast. I have a unique podcast this week. Well, very unique for me because I'm speaking to a sports player by the name of Keith Earls, who's an incredibly successful rugby player who plays for Munster, Ireland, the British and Irish Lions. This is someone who is a legend within their profession. But it's outside my comfort zone because, as you know from listening to this podcast, I really, really know fucking nothing about sports. Like, I, I know so little about sports. I know minus information. Like, I not only know fuck all, but I get things wrong. So, that's why I don't really speak to people who are involved in sports on this podcast. It's why I haven't really done it up until this point, because I'm scared that I'll say something so clueless that it'll be, like, embarrassing. So how did I end up with Keith Earls on this podcast? Well, I did a gig in University of Limerick a couple of weeks ago in the concert hall, and it was put together by UL Student Life, which is like the University of Limerick Student Union. And they suggested to me, why don't you speak to Keith Earls? And I said, no, I'll be terrified. I don't know anything about rugby. I know that he's a legend, but I don't think I'll be able to give give him the respect that he deserves for all he's accomplished because I don't really understand it. And then they said to me, well, Keith is a rugby player, but he's also been very open about his struggles with mental health issues. And so are you, blind boy. So maybe both of you together can speak about that. And I was like... Okay, that sounds like something I could do, but I was still a small bit nervous. So what I suggested was, which looking back now is absolutely ridiculous, but what I suggested was, I said, why don't, why don't me and Keith speak, but also there's like a psychologist present, or a sports psychologist present, so that the sports psychologist can act as a translator. So if the subject of rugby comes up and I don't really have information at hand, I can deflect it to the sports psychologist and they will help me understand rugby through the language of psychology, which I do understand. So the university said, yeah, we can get you Dr. Declan Ahern, who is a veteran psychologist, psychotherapist, has been a psychotherapist for over 30 years and he's also a sports psychologist who has worked with Munster rugby players including Keith so then I said yes okay fuck it let's do it let's do it and you know what I'm really fucking glad I did because we had the most wonderful beautiful conversation and all my fears about interviewing a sports personality while not knowing about sports it didn't matter because we're humans we spoke about humanity And it didn't matter that Keith Earls is a rugby player and that I'm an artist. It didn't matter. Because we're both people who care deeply about our respective professions. Both of our professions are in the public eye. Both of us are expected to perform. And we found all these beautiful commonalities between art and sports. And it then left me with this newfound respect and understanding for sports. Like, for instance, Keith was describing, like, in the position that he plays in rugby, he doesn't just, like, 
play alone. He needs to have a relationship with another player in a different position and both of them work with each other. And I didn't have a clue about that, but what it reminded me of was the relationship that a bass player has to have with a drummer. The bass player needs to listen to the drummer more than any other member of the band because the drummer keeps the beat and the bass player obeys that bass drum. And if the bass player listens too much to either the singer or the guitar player, then he'll fuck it up. And thinking about it that way made me understand rugby a little bit. So I'm really looking forward to showing you this conversation. One other thing I want to flag. So because I have Keith Earls on this podcast, I'm going to get... There'll be a bunch of ye listening today who don't normally listen to my podcast at all. And you're here to listen to me chat to Keith Earls. And that's absolutely fine. You're so welcome. You're incredibly welcome here. But one thing I do want to make clear to you, I don't really do like standard interviews when I bring someone onto this podcast. I don't like the interview format where I simply bring someone on and ask them questions. What I try and do is have a conversation. I try and have a conversation that doesn't necessarily have a direction. So if you're new to this podcast, you could be listening to this and you'd be getting frustrated and you'd be thinking, why is the interviewer talking so much? Why is Blind Boy talking so much? Why doesn't he shut the fuck up and just ask key questions? That's not what I do. I want something that is different and a space where I can be genuinely curious with another human being. So what you have here instead is a conversation between an artist and a rugby player and us finding commonality in the simple suffering of being human beings. And I was so glad to do it because Keith Earls is an absolute fucking gentleman. And I shouldn't have been nervous at all. What the fuck was I nervous about? We're both from Limerick City. We're both about the same age. We're both performers from Limerick City who've made names for ourselves outside Limerick City in our chosen fields. Why would we not get together and have a wonderful conversation? And not only that, we had such a lovely time that I'm going to ask Keith to go for a coffee when the weather is nice in Limerick. So I thoroughly enjoyed this. I loved this conversation and I loved the experience of stepping outside my comfort zone. And for my listeners who might have no interest whatsoever in rugby or sports, don't worry because this is a conversation about being human. And for those wondering, Jesus blind boy, you're from Limerick and you know fucking nothing about rugby and Limerick is the rugby city. You know nothing about sports. What's that about? Well, what I always say to this is I just don't, I don't have the gift of appreciating sports. It's not that I don't like sports. I've tried all my life to enjoy it. That wonderful communal feeling of competitiveness and whatever it is the crowd get from being a part of a sports event, I just don't have it. I don't have that gift. And I'd love to have that gift because I see people enjoying sports as much as they do And I feel a little bit jealous, feel a bit left out. It's like, fuck it. I'd love to care about something as much as those people care about that rugby match on the television or that soccer match on the TV. And if you're interested in sports psychology, um, there's quite a lot of interesting stuff here, especially from Declan Ahern. And I was fascinated with sports psychology and I could relate so much of it to my own job. And I'm not even in fucking sports. Uh, Declan as a psychologist is quite quite humanistic his background is in gestalt psychology and Declan as well 
like quite a lot of psychologists is, is very critical of psychiatry and the diagnosis model of psychiatry. So Declan expresses quite a bit of that in here. And I just want to point out one error that I make in this podcast. I mentioned a psychiatrist that I had on this podcast before called Dr. Pat Bracken. And I said that Pat worked in the Congo. He didn't work in the Congo. He worked in Uganda. So I got that little bit wrong. But if you hear that bit in the podcast where I speak about my interview with Dr. Pat Bracken about psychiatry, because Pat Bracken is a psychiatrist who's critical of psychiatry as well. Just go back and listen to my podcast from 2018 called Dr. Pat Bracken. Also, Keith R has released his autobiography this year called Fight or Flight, which is about his life, his life as a rugby player, but also about his mental health struggles. So here's the chat that I had in University of Limerick with Munster and international rugby player Keith Earls and sports psychologist Dr. Declan Ahern. What, what is sports psychology? <laughs> in one sentence. <laughs> pull, pull, pull the mic towards it there. So it's easy, want, it, is that working? Is that all right? Do you want a one sentence answer or, a, or an hour? Well, we're here for fucking ages, man. So you can, you can <laughs> whatever way you want. I mean... So there's nothing particularly unique about sports psychology. It, it, it was in the field of psychology. Yeah. It's, it's applying basic principles that we apply in lots of other realms, like clinical psychology, the same types of things, but applying it in a sports setting. Uh, and to be fair, you know, sports psychologists are um, a luxury maybe for, for most people. That you, yeah. you know, it's not something that everybody can indulge in, but you can do an awful lot of it yourself. And uh, because psychology is a part of every athlete, regardless of whether they have a sports psychologist or not, psychology comes into every single f- performance, as well as your kind of performance in this a- arena. You know, it's the same principles apply. Because like, there's one thing I was wondering about, about sports psychology is... So here's this type of psychology that's applied to one job, being a professional athlete. But then I'm thinking of all the other jobs, like working in retail. Like, that's very, very stressful. You know, if you're working in Duns or something and there's people there all the time talking to you, why isn't there, like, a retail psychologist? Or even... But it's true. Lots of jobs are, are like... Sports is stressful in one specific way, but then retail is stressful in this other specific way. But even my own job, Mm -hmm. like... So I, I'm, I'm a professional artist, I perform, I studied psychology years ago, and so much of psychology that I studied, I bring to what I do. Mm. Like mainly, the toughest part of my job is, is being afraid of failing. If I'm afraid of failure, then I won't try. I'll procrastinate, I'll procrastinate very, very heavily. So every day I have to overcome the fear of failing. Mm. And how I've learned to overcome, I won't say overcome, how I've learned to battle the fear of failure is I'm only afraid of failing if my self-esteem and identity is attached to being a good artist. So like that short story I read there, you know, um, I'm currently writing a new book. The toughest part about writing for me is the fear of, oh, fuck, what if it's shit? What if, what if today I don't perform? What if today I sit down at the page and what I write is terrible? And uh, my mind will start saying things to me like, uh, oh, it was just a fluke. Anything you've done in the past that was good, it's just a fucking fluke. You've really found out now you're a piece of shit, you're fucking useless. Mm. And these are the type of terrible thoughts that will go through me. 
So that's so, exactly what happens in sport. The exact that's same, what, what you described. The exact same thing. Keith, I'm sure, would agree. Like that, that's what will go through the mind of, of a player before they go out in a match as well. Am I going to make a bollocks of this? You know, that's what they're going to. Your identity, Keith. Your identity and your self-esteem. So as a professional rugby player, like there's Keith Earls who's on TV, who's on the pitch, who has all these expectations, and then there's just Keith, the human being. And how do you separate those two things? And how how has how did that go for you? Yeah, I, I, I struggled with it at the start. Um, like, I think I only found my identity in the last couple of years, you know, especially coming from Limerick, coming from Munster, you're, you're surrounded by your people. It's not like playing in any other club. It means so much more to us. And, you know, it was a 24, like it was 24-7, like a Munster rugby player. And mm-hmm. I was like, you said there, who, who the fuck is Keith Earls? Yeah. So I had to go and go on that journey and figure out what I wanted. I was around a lot of big personalities um, when I came into the Munster scene that just thought completely different to me and I felt like I had to act like them and I felt like mm-hmm. I had to do things they had done and I, I hid away myself and then I forgot who I was and then I'm stuck in Limberland and I was like, who am I? And when you said there you've only started to discover who you are now, right? What, what was the beginning of that journey? Where, where even to say that is fucking massive. Even to be able to say it to yourself, fuck it, I have an idea who I am. Do you know? And it's a lovely feeling. What started you on that journey, that particular journey? Yeah, like, the biggest thing in 2013, I was going through all these mad, mad behaviours. Um, like my... My partner at the time would see it, my father would see it, my mother would see it. What's a mad behaviour? Like, fucking crazy thinking, like, going yeah. off, like, oh, I could do random. I remember I arrived on, when I first became a professional rugby player, I arrived on up to my father's house in a, in a Range Rover. I was like, look at this, dad, in this class. And he goes, you know what you can do with that? No, you can fucking return it. Like, I'd reel this, like, impulsive fucking decision. So now, oh, now like, yeah. I'm like... I like I know like I think it's something I then I do it straight away and then I'm like oh my god what am I after doing? Yeah. But now like I've I've gotten a lot a lot better at it and and I went and I, and I spoke to a psychologist I spoke to I like I was reading it like you know I was always reading up saying why am I so mad why do people think I'm a weirdo um, and then I went and I spoke to a, t- a teammate he he was in the coaching staff I knew he'd mental health issues I went and I spoke to him. And I asked him, what, what should I do? I went down in and I spoke to a professional and, you know, he, t- he told me what was going on and, you know, he put, I know Declan probably speak about it more, he put a bipolar label on it, which, which made sense. I was a bit relieved, but I didn't understand. Yeah. Why I, was just, I just accepted it and I knew I had something, but, you know, I didn't know why. And by, is bipolar the one where <clears throat> you can go through periods of being very excited and impulsive and then followed by a kind of a deep depression and it goes in those cycles. Is, is that, was yeah, that yeah, your experience? Yeah, and a lot of it, a lot of mine, like the manics weren't, it wasn't manic, it was like bipolar too, if they want to speak more, like it was kind of like, there was times I just feel numb, like yeah. no feeling. Uh, and then, as, yeah, as you said, just feeling low as well, like, you know, and, you know, I, I just didn't know how to deal with it. Like, you know, just a vicious circle and, 
you know, catastrophic thinking. And if, if you're feeling numb, Keith, would doing something like buying a Range Rover, or doing, would, would that be a way to try and feel? Yeah, I try. I, 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 yeah, you, you'd look for something to get you. I remember, I remember I was inside in town sitting down having sushi one day and I felt numb. And I, we were going on tour to Argentina like two days later and I was like, I don't want to feel like this in Argentina. I'm going to go on the piss and have the crack. Yeah. But I woke up then the following morning and I was like a million times worse and I pulled yeah. out of the tour. Oh, you fucking sh- yeah. serious, yeah, man. Yeah, yeah, because I, I come off, like I, I've, I'd been given medication for the bipolar. Oh, fuck. I was delighted I got diagnosed and then I took the medication. I was like, right, I'm going to get better here. And then like... As I started doing all my research, I was like, this fucking medication, I don't want to be on it. I went off at cold turkey, all the numbness and everything started coming in. Then I started going drinking, trying, trying to find yeah. happiness through, I said, buying a fucking Range Rover, buying, doing something mad, like, you know. Because drink is a terrible fucker for that, because the thing with drink, <laughs> drink, can, drink can bring you close to, it, it like replicates emotions. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And what's your relationship with, with, with substances in general? Like, is the, Did you ever find yourself uh, on top of it drifting into addiction territory? Or addiction, to, for me as well, doesn't have to mean your life is fucked from drink. But mm. for me, addiction, even if you have a drink because you're trying to solve an internal feeling, that for me is enough to end it. Like in, in my own life, like I, I love having a couple of cans, right? Mm. But... If the reason for me having a couple of cans is I feel shit today, so cans will make me feel better, I tend to not go near the cans. Then I investigate, hold on a second, what's going on for me here? And once I go there, I don't want the cans anymore. Yeah, and the I, only time I enjoy yeah. cans is as a reward. Yeah, I, I agree with you, yeah, and, that, and that's where I got to. And look, thankfully, no, I didn't. I probably got addicted to, to finding how to make myself better. <laughs> like, like, you know what I mean? And that's the, the way my addiction went. I went on this mad journey of finding like you know natural like my, my diet like yeah. breath work i fucking love breath work you meditating i i, I meditate i do breath work I, like wim Hof. yeah 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 so, I, and you go into the cold as well do you yeah i cold showers yeah um but you know so you have to like being you know it's all right doing it for a week like yeah. being consistent is a thing i'm doing i'm doing work with um ron o'brien he's he's here he's uh, uh breed waves some some of the buzzes you can get from breathing, yeah. like the consciousness is 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 insane. Like you know, and I suppose as you said that was my addiction was how to beat bipolar naturally because I didn't like medication yeah. and and that meant going around asking for help anyone in every sort of field that was was the healthy way of doing it. You know, and Declan, right? So Keith spoke there about um, diagnosis. Like, so, like, e- even myself recently, I've received an, a, an autism diagnosis. And that's real difficult for me at this stage in my 30s to all of a sudden... I've been given a new word to describe something I knew my entire life. But at the same time, it's difficult. My identity, it's like, here's a label now, you're, you're, you're autistic or you're bipolar. Mm. It's a tough one. If, what are your opinions now as a professional, as a, as a clinical professional around diagnosis well i'm putting my professional well, the, the my professionalism bit, yeah. on the line but, but by saying that a, a lot of it is a load of shite like it's a, a lot of <laughs> you know a lot of la- a lot of those labels that are and, and some diagnoses are useful yeah so the diagnosis of autism which i'm very familiar with and and you know it's, it's very common 
uh, is, is, as I was speaking to you earlier about, is a, just a, a, it's a neural diversity. It's just a different wiring system. Yeah. And if you can imagine if everybody in, in this building was autistic, it would be the norm, and we wouldn't have bright lights, and we wouldn't have loud noises, yeah. and we'd, we'd survive, it would be fine. We'd, we'd create a society that would be suited to that. So that's a very different diagnosis than talking about a diagnosis like bipolar, which is a psychiatric label that's used. Autism is a... That's a, not psychiatric, no? It's, it's more neuro, a neurodevelopmental okay. problem is what we'd call it. You yeah. know, where the psychiatric labels are the ones I uh, have difficulty with, and okay. I've shared this with Keith, which is that uh, they really don't serve an awful useful purpose. And for, for all of those people who read Keats' uh, autobiography, he gives a perfect example, if you read the book, uh, of why he might feel the way he feels without mm -hmm. ever having to put a label on it. So what we're talking about there is like a, a trauma-informed model. So yeah. could you speak about that? So, Keith, if you're speaking about, like, you can look at points in your life where you might have witnessed trauma or trauma was a part of growing up, and this is part of your story. Yeah, it's, it's quite similar to yourself. Like in my household, I would have grew up with an, an unbelievably paranoid father, but he was paranoid because of where where I was growing up, where I was living. My Ross, when I got to a certain age, like the crime was crazy, and yeah. like a lot of, a lot of things. There's, there's a story in my book. It was a beautiful summer's day. Um, myself and my cousin, we had my pool table out in the back garden, like just pl playing pool, and we heard a shot. We ran out to the porch and um, we were looking. We just seen a fella standing with a balaclava on, and he's standing there, and there's a group of lads, and and they're running, and we we're like, oh my god, what the yeah. what the fuck? And and that was that was the fear. Like, what happens if we were playing soccer where we usually play soccer? But then the following morning, my father went out to start his van. He was parked, and he just started a new job. He started his own business as a floor fitter. And he went off to head off to work and the van wouldn't start and he lift up the bonnet and there was a light coming through, a bullet had, wow. had hit his van and the car wouldn't start that fucked his day for, um, for going to a start of his day. But so was your dad saying don't go out and play soccer in the field because there's a risk of getting shot? Yeah, my father is often, he, I, used to, I used to hang around my, like, I get out my wife since I was 12. So I used to go up to Woodview. Sounds like, like you've had a wife <laughs> since you were 12. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But like I lived in my Ross here and then there was Nesson's Tom in college, no school, yeah. and then Woodview's here. So I'd often be up in Woodview with Edel and my father would pull up in the, in the car and he'd make me change my clothes because he would have seen one of the, one of the gang members in the same hoodie as me or someone with a hoodie. Yeah. He used to say I used to wear a baseball cap. Um, I used to be like, if you see me wearing it, he'd, he, he'd gone mad, like he, he was complete, and it was understandable, like, you know, we've, I grew up with fellas who've, who've been murdered in it, like, you know, and, and that just got me into that thinking, all constantly negative thinking, and, like, he was going around blessing himself a hundred times, and if he banged his elbow, he'd have to bang his other elbow, so I, I couldn't, ah. there was a stage there I couldn't go to bed without turning the TV onto number three, because I think something bad was going to happen to me. But someone so, could call that OCD, but you're going, should I learn that from my dad? Yeah, okay. exactly. And yeah. that's why I know I've, I've wrote in the book that, you know, being diagnosed with bipolar, I'm not convinced yet. Yeah. I'm not convinced yet. And like Deckna says, because the journey I've been on, the addiction I've been on to, to try and get better, you know, there's times... Like, I know, like, when, when I do, obviously, rugby, the ups and downs, that's the only reason I'm staying on the medication at the moment. Mm -hmm. But when I come off it, 
when I retire, I'm gonna I'm gonna come off it because I know I figured out now that what my what my triggers are. Um, I figure out I know when when I start eating shit food. Yeah. I know when I start going for certain things. I'm like, okay, things. You, this is the earliest little signal. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You need to pull back, or I might just ring someone and say, man, what do you think it is? Or like you know, I'd ask for advices. Does this sound normal to you? You know, so it's. My biggest thing is I'm not I'm not scared to to ask someone if they think I'm mad or I'd make a phone call before making a decision. So you you will have a thought will come into your head that you'll think this is irrational and this is a this is a trigger that I'm going down this certain path. Yeah. So you might ring someone up and say, Does this sound mad to you? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And if they say, Yeah, it does, Keith, yeah, then you go, Right, okay, I need to have a bit of self awareness around this. Yeah, and that's and that's what I found, that's what I've that's that's my way of as Declan says, like whatever you have is finding a way to to live with it and and ask for help and it, it's weird my wife can see it in my eyes now yeah I look her and she was like she can see when you're okay yeah yeah, yeah. like in, in the book if you read my book like my my parents came up with a nick like like i have an alter ego hank so growing up like you know me myself and irene yeah 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 like i remember watching that years ago and then my parents would see all my behavior and I'd do something, like, when I was younger, like, fucking, I don't know, I'd be acting the maggot at home, or I'd be chanting to my parents, and they're like, I'd be chanting to Hank or Keith. Yeah. But that was a, that was, that was a funny, they thought it was a joke, but then it was, like, stuck in my head, like, th- there is two people in here, maybe, like, you know? Um, yeah, so... But the interesting thing is, is that, like, psychiatrically, your diagnosis would say that, like, the things that you're doing, like, the, the Wim Hof method... Um, I'm, I'm guessing you do a bit of mindfulness as well, do you? Yeah, yeah. It would say that that doesn't work, but you're actually going, hold on a second, this actually does work for me. Yeah, and I went on that journey blind by where I know I've seen people might give up. I give up on it. I know about it a while, but I give up after a week. I give up after a month. And I just sat down one day and I'm like, right, I'm going to give this six months. Because if you're going to the gym, you're not going to get fucking muscles in a week. You know, it's going to end. Exactly. I was never convinced. I used to be saying, oh, you're all liars. Like, yeah. You're all liars. You, you, I'm, I'm not going to get better here. Like, you're all a pack of liars. And then I remember one day, like, my nutrition was great. Like, all my mindfulness, my visualization, my rugby. And I know it sounds like a lot. But I remember one day I was just like, Man, I haven't had anxiety. I haven't had crazy feelings in a long time. So... And that took, like, I used to do journaling, like, I used to room yeah. with Paul O'Connell, and he'd tell you every night before bed, every morning I'd wake up and I'd, I'd be writing stuff, like, you know, I will be the best rugby player, I will be this. And I'd have a gratitude list of, uh, like... Was that helpful? How, how look, very helping. Myself yeah. talk. I was burnt out from talking to myself. That's like, the fucking yeah. thing. Because when you have that depression and anxiety... Mm. It's all this voices inside, non-stop, this negative. And then when you fucking open up, when you write it down, yeah. it's out of your body and it's there on a page. And especially if the thought that you're thinking is mad, once you see it there, you go, that's fucking mad. That's, yeah, yeah. The fuck is that? It's I've been like, entertaining It's like the phone call now, like, you know, I ring it, like, someone I trust. Is that, like, it's just like hearing it from someone else. You're like, yeah, that is, that is, that is mad. But it's, it's like you, you're... Your mind is going to believe you no matter what you're saying. So, yeah. you know what I mean? I spent a lot, long time. First thing, getting up in the morning, I was like, today is going to be a great day. Do you get yeah, up in the morning and you make a little choice of today is going to be good? Yeah, sure. You have, everyone has the, this, 
decision. Yeah. You have a decision. You're either, you're either going to, like say that, you're going to wake up with a negative talk or you're going to yeah. be a positive and, you know, you have a, I've a decision, someone can call me a dope or I have a decision to yeah. get angry or I can just say, that's their opinion. your opinion. Because that's interesting because one thing I, I struggle with a lot over the pandemic is I'll wake up in the morning and sometimes my first feeling will be dread. Like I, I open my eyes and I'm overwhelmed with a feeling of everything's awful, everything's terrible. And if I entertain that, there's no evidence for that feeling. It's just all it is is an emotion. If I start, the first thing my brain will do then is I've just felt immediate dread now that I've woken up. Let's think of all the reasons why it's true. And I'm searching around for them. And what, how I always stop that every morning when it does happen, compassion for my two cats. So I get up out of bed. I have two cats out the back garden. They're stray, but they're not. They're called Silk and Thomas and Napper Tandy. And <laughs> one of them is deaf. And a brother and sister, and one of them is deaf. And uh, his eyesight isn't great either. But they're good cats. And I, f I, I wake up, and I'd be feeding these negative emotions. And now all of a sudden, I've got these two gorgeous little cats. And I have to feed them. And their needs and their happiness depend on my ability. Like, they can't eat if I don't feed them. Mm -hmm. And that one little act of compassion... Because the thing is, with mental health issues, it can be very fucking selfish. You're thinking about yourself. It's, you can, because you're, you're, threat, you're, you're at such a high state of threat, your empathy isn't great. You're not mm -hmm. thinking about other people. And animals, I always find, are a great one for that with me. Even rubbing their little heads, seeing how happy they are to get their food, that brings me down now to the point where that dread that's up there, I'm now thinking rationally. Because that's when we were speaking there about the journaling. When your mind has got negative self-talk all day, you're also, you're not using all of your brain. You're only using that yeah. part that's thinking of threat. And when you do that, you can't think critically about your emotions. But the journal and seeing the words there, writing it down, you kind of calm down a bit and you can, you can intellectually see, oh, this is fucking ridiculous. What am I thinking this for? You know, have you anything to say about what me and Keith were chatting about there? Absolutely, Definitely. I could speak for forever about what you're saying, sitting back there just being inspired by what you're talking about. And what really encourages me is that the two, the two year talking about mental health issues in really uh, constructive, useful ways, all right? Mm -hmm. Rather than us getting hung up on labels and diagnosis, you're talking about the real life issues that we have to deal with. For two men to be here talking about these things, like 20, 30 years ago, that was not uh, no. permitted, you know? So I'm really encouraged by the way in which you're doing that and that all the things you're talking about, I can tell you as a psychologist, are dead on. So don't worry, you know, wondering, am I doing the right thing? I mean, and I'll have to put my hand up and say, yeah, I'm a Wim Hofer as well, and I'm doing my mindfulness because they're the most important important life skills you can learn um, you know and things I know you're big you, you, you like CBT work and, and you're talking about the kind of calming yeah. stuff that's very very useful as well but the only label the only diagnosis I would encourage that, that we all have to, to live with is that we're human that's the mm -hmm. only one that I'd be really interested in and dealing with what you lads are talking about now is being human and dealing with human issues uh, and we all have to struggle with that there's no magic formula to fix that and there certainly is no pill that's going to start it out for you and what one thing <coughs> I'd like to ask you too, um, so when diagnosis has happened, like something like bipolar, right, 
I think how the DSM is used, the Diagnostics and Statistics Manual. Cut and I'm assuming this is something you're quite critical of. And it's something <laughs> that, like, I'm not in the position to be critical about it because I'm not an expert. But it's, we were talking about a fucking checklist. That's and ridiculous. the hu- human personality is, individuals are too complex sometimes to fit this checklist of six points. Look, it's, it's I'm, tr- I'm trying to use the nice words now, right? But DSM is a, it's a, a diagnostic and statistical manual for psychiatric diagnosis. The, the first one was brought out about 70 years ago, with mm-hmm. I think maybe 80 or 90 disorders. It's now up around 350 yeah. they've discovered. Up until the 70s, like being gay was in this, was are. considered a, a mental illness that was being diagnosed like, you so know? It's, it's, it's antiquated, it's, it's not relevant, it doesn't apply, like the stuff you're talking about is what's relevant. Unfortunately, and I say this with the, the, the highest respect for so many of my medical colleagues, but psychiatry needs to come of age and realize that this DSM is a load of rubbish, mm-hmm. it doesn't help anybody, uh, and all it does is promote this diagnostic model that is driven by a medical and, dare I say it, pharmaceutical yeah. business. That's the only basis behind it, because there's nothing else that they have to offer. And that's a controversial one to do. Like to, it's a controversial position to take, to be Well, I know, I've got, my, I've got my ass kicked over it many of course, the time. Yeah. Because I, but I'd put my hand up and I'd say, if I don't say it, who's going to say it? Because there's not many people, you know, I'm, I'm you, over the hill now. I don't have to worry anymore about somebody sacking me from my job or anything. But, you know, there's a real-life issue here about how we deal with mental health problems. And we've got to move on from, from labels, diagnosis, and in particular, dependency on the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, are you familiar with a fellow called Dr. Pat Bracken? I am indeed, yeah. So Pat Bracken is someone I've had on this podcast, right? And yeah. Pat is... Good guy. He's a psychiatrist... But he, and he was also the head of the Irish Psychiatry Society, but he's very critical of psychiatry. Yeah. And some of the fucking things Pat was telling me was, was he's fascinating. Dead on. I mean, he's, he's dead on, yeah. yeah. One of the things that changed Pat's mind about psychiatry was <clears throat> he was sent, he went to Africa, right, to, to help child soldiers who were in the Congo, I believe. And these are kids of about 13, who at the age of maybe six or seven were given guns and had to kill people. Deeply, deeply traumatized children. And Pat was sent over as a Western psychiatrist with a team of psychiatrists to help them. And what Pat found was Western psychology just didn't fucking work because these kids come from a completely different culture that isn't rooted in Western ideas. So no amount of his techniques as a psychiatrist could help these traumatized kids. But what did work was when these kids engaged in rituals that were specific to their culture, so whatever rituals, dances, things that had value within their culture, when they engaged in this, then they started to see healing and started to see them uh, not being defined by their trauma. And that's what made Pat skeptical of hold on a second, this psychiatry shit, what's going on here? And another fascinating thing that Pat Bracken told me, he said that something like schizophrenia, right? So with schizophrenia, it's it's where you you can hear voices, and you hear voices in your head. And Pat said that in cultures such as our culture, where we say that this is a bad thing, to hear voices is a terrible thing and this is an illness, Mm -hmm. in those cultures... The people who hear the voices, the voices tend to attack them. They tend to be terrifying voices that they need to escape. But there are cultures where hearing voices is considered a gift. Mm. 
So this is a gift from God and a person who hears voices is a special person in this community. And the people who hear those voices tend to hear voices that aren't threatening. And they still hear voices, but they live lives with meaning. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? It's the rules of society that define whether it's bad or not. So, and I always found that absolutely fucking I mean, fascinating. And they've tried to develop in, in, in Western culture. There's now groups set up throughout the UK and in Ireland hearing voices. Groups. Hearing voices. You know, to go, I am a person who hears yeah. voices. I'm not medically... Take, take the fear out of it. You know? Yeah. We're going to have a small little break from the interview now for the ocarina pause. This is where, if you're a new listener to this podcast, I play a little ocarina, which is a type of South American whistle. And I do this because... An advert is going to play. I don't know what the advert is for because it's algorithmically generated and inserted by Acast. But I don't want to give you a big fright by just all of a sudden having an advert. So instead, let's play the little ocarina and you might hear an advert. That's a particularly high... Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. No, there, it sounds like a fucking rat being tortured. There we go. That was the ocarina pause. You would have heard an advert there. Support for this podcast comes from you, the listener, via the Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash the blind boy podcast. This podcast is my full time job. This podcast is how I earn a living. It's my career. I adore making this podcast. I love it. I love it with all my heart. But if you enjoy listening to this podcast, if it gives you solace, comfort, distraction, entertainment, Whatever. If you're taking time out to listen to this podcast and it does something for your week, just please consider paying me for the work that I'm doing. All I'm looking for is the price of a cup of coffee or a pint once a month. That's it. If you listen to this podcast and you say to yourself, fuck could I like that. I'd, I'd buy, buy blind buy a pint if I met him. Well, you can via the Patreon page. Patreon.com forward slash the blind buy podcast. If you can't afford that... Don't worry about it. You don't have to pay because the person who is paying is paying for you to listen for free. So everybody gets a podcast and I earn a living. It's a wonderful model based on soundness and kindness. Also, Patreon keeps this podcast independent. 
I'm not beholden to any advertisers. Advertisers can't tell me what to talk about. They can't dictate the content. Like I tell you what, an interview like this, with me and Keith speaking about... Me interviewing a rugby player and we're not even talking that much about rugby. We're talking just about the commonality of, of being human. That's the type of shit where an advertiser would step in and say, Can you talk about rugby more? What you're doing is a bit unconventional and strange. Can you do something closer to a straight interview, please? This doesn't align with our brand. I can tell them to go fuck themselves. So the Patreon... <laughs> the Patreon allows me to have that type of freedom and keeps the podcast fully independent. So I get to make what I want to make and be passionate about what I make. Because that freedom is disappearing in the podcast space. Corporate money and advertising has taken over the podcast space. And small independent creators who are making things that they're genuinely passionate about are being buried under all those big huge corporate podcasts. So support all independent podcasts, not just mine. Either monetarily or simply by sharing it on your social media or leaving a comment or a like or a review. Now back to the interview where we speak about the experience of flow in sports and in art. I'm going to ask something now, sportsy. Because this is an interesting one, because I'd, ne- I'd never heard of this, but someone asked, uh, can you speak about the dreaded yips? Now, yips to me means it's just a, a, a limerick-specific word for ecstasy. But it says, <laughs> yips, I recall reading that this, this sudden inability to perform previously well-practiced skills can be very complex on the psychological level, and treatment typically involves clinical sports psychology therapy. So I'd never heard of that, but I know that as writer's block. Mm. I'm a professional writer. This is what I do. I've, I have fucking two bestsellers. I've proven to myself I can do this. But I can get myself into a fucking situation where I can't write. I can't perform. And I'm telling myself that I'm useless, despite all external evidence. That's creative block. This sounds like sports block. Have you ever experienced that? Yeah, I did. And... It nearly ruined my life because rugby meant so much to me, and you know. You, what, what's that like? What like? What was that like? Oh, I was. It was de- I felt degraded. Like it was just. It was shit. Like at training all week, I'd be incredible. I'd talk to lads, doing mad stuff at training, and then you go out in the game, and then you said they're catastrophic thinking. They, like, there's times there, like in World Cups, that all I do is catch a ball and score a try, and it fucking hit off my finger and. You know, it's sometimes what what I've learned, what I've learned in life is I've acceptance now is 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 massive for me. I've I've accepted that I'm gonna have a sh- I'm gonna play a shit game, like or mm-hmm. I'm gonna have a shit week. Um, but my biggest thing is my preparation. I can accept if I can, if I prepare for a game and I take all the boxes and I can look myself in the mirror at the end at, after the game, but I've had a shit game. I can, I can deal with that, you know. I I know the yips is kind of more around, kind of maybe golf and, you know, mm. tennis or something. But the yips to me is that negative thinking and the lack of confidence and uh, you know no self esteem and not being able to handle pressure. Like you know a basic catching the ball, which you could do with one hand, which your eyes closed nearly at training, mm-hmm. and you can't do it in front in front of a a crow, but. My, the big, my big philosophy in life at the moment is, has been accepting, accept that, you know, shit can hit the fan. Um, you accept that, you know, 
you have to suffer to get to get somewhere good. One thing I'd love to ask you as well, Keith, is do, do you ever experience a thing called flow when you're performing as a sports person? Like, uh, uh, it's it's like for so for me as an artist, right? Flow is essential to my job. So if I'm sitting down to write a story, it feels as if so I'm in this intense feeling of concentration with utter bliss. It's the greatest feeling in the world. Wonderful concentration. I'm kind of not thinking. I'm like a pure beam of energy. And if I'm writing, it doesn't feel like I'm coming up with ideas. It's as if I'm sitting in a cinema and a film is made just for me and something's been revealed to me. And that for me is flow. And if I can fucking do that, I'm at the top of my game. Mm -hmm. Do you experience that as a, as a sp sports player? Yeah, yeah, you do, and but I, I, I can't tell you how I feel, or I can't. It just um, there's times in games where I've, I just can't explain how I've done, I've done that. And so that, you've looked back at yourself, going, "Who the fuck is this cunt? Who did?" Yeah, I was like, "How, how did that happen?" Yeah, you know, it's it's weird, and I know it's a state of flow because I know it's a state yeah. of flow, but. You know, that's, that's the biggest thing. We're all trying to access the state of flow. But, but your state of flow is also accompanied by adrenaline. Yeah, Like, yeah. I'm sitting on my hole with a laptop. Mm. You're fucking... So it must be different. There's extra chemicals involved. Like, you know, mine is very relaxing. Yours mm. is yeah. adrenaline there. So you're, when you experience flow, you don't know what's happening. Yeah, yeah, but exactly. But you, have you left the pitch, though? Like, has your consciousness kind of left... Or are you focused? Do you, do you, like, there's the ball, I'm getting it Yeah, yeah there's one. Excitement. Excitement ah. to, to get the ball. But then, like, as I said, I don't know how you access it. And, you know, I think, like, it's like you there. It's like, oh, was that a fluke of a game? But you're just, you're just gone into a different state. And yeah. trying to access that state every game would, would obviously be unbelievable. But, yeah, I, I can't describe Sometimes I do things and I'm like, people think, oh, that's class. And I'm like, I've no idea. Oh, we've done that. Or best, the best way to develop flow is doing the things that both of you practice is mindfulness. Because flow is about being in the here and now. Yeah. You know, I've studied that with people like Samuel Sullivan, uh, Michael Johnson, Tiger Woods. They all give descriptions of being in the flow. If you read what they say, they're, they're always going to be saying, I'm in the here and now. I'm fully present in the moment now. And that's what the flow is. So the more you can practice your ability to do that, the more you don't have any, like you were saying, you've no th you, there's no thinking going on. No. Because you're just in the moment. So that's, it's my, flow is mindfulness. More, you know, they're, they're, they're coming from the same skills, skill set, basically. So the more because you can learn to be mindful, the more you'll be in the flow. Flow does feel like when I meditate. Yeah. Like when I meditate and I really get into that space. Yeah. Which is mindful flow meditation. Flow feels like yeah. that. And, and another question I must ask you about your, your experience of flow on the, on the pitch. Do you know that the, the negative things that come in when, you're, when your mental health is at you, thinking about, for me it's usually worrying about shit that's happened in the past or worrying about what might happen. And when you're in a bad mental health state, that tends to be how we go about our day and you miss the present moment completely. Like one of the shittest feelings in the world is I might wake up and I'm either worrying about the future or worrying about the past and I look at my watch and three hours has passed. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And it's like, what a fucking waste of time. And it might as well have felt like 10 minutes. But when you experience flow, I bet you none of that is there. Yeah, no, you're right. Because, and that's what I'm trying to say with the yips. Like there would have been a stage in my career, we have certain moves when we're on the pitch and the move might be created to put me into space. But I would be thinking, 
you're going to fucking drop this ball. You're going to drop this ball. Don't drop this ball. Or it could be... Now, I know literally nothing about rugby. So you mean that... Yeah, so we could Someone's have a Someone's over move. there. I'm going to push the ball up that way. Yeah. He's going to be there, and then it's going to arrive at Keith. Yeah, exactly. Okay. To hopefully score the try. And, yeah. uh, and I'm like... I'm thinking negative. I'm thinking about... Oh, so I'm thinking of the past knock-ons. Uh, when I dropped the ball, I'm thinking about them. I was like, this has happened to you before. You're going to do it again. Or I'd be like, don't fuck this up now. But when I'm... The last couple of years now, we'll like say if a scrum has happened, the lads are pushing and I'm on the wing scratching my arse and I might have 30 seconds. I'm just literally thinking about my, my breathing now. You know, as hard as it is and it, it comes with practice, I'm just trying to like block out, every, block out everything in the crowd, even though you could be getting abused or everything. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can hear them like. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But it's sure. That's not nice, man. That's like being on Twitter, except you're in the middle of a game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I remember I was playing in Ulster one time. One thing freaked me out. Like all abuse in the world you can take. Mm -hmm. But someone, I remember, roared out in the, the stand and goes, Earls, you've got butter on your fingers. And I was like, oh my, why didn't you just abuse me? And now I'm like, fucking hell, look that. I'm going to drop the ball, like, it's, my hands are greasy. It was, it was weird, but yeah, I got into a good place where now I'm... You'll see it now with rugby teams, you know, after a try or something, a break and play, we all come together and we'll, we'll take two deep breaths because if, if you're concentrating on your breathing, and, and Dick, I don't know, he might agree with me, if you're concentrating on your breathing, you can't think about anything else. And as well as that, like, when you're breathing like that, you're literally allowing more oxygen into your brain. Your brain is functioning better. You know, um, when I was first, when I was 19 and a professional first told me, when I, when I first started getting panic attacks when I was 18, 19, I didn't know what they were. I was just like, three times a day I think I'm dying. Because <laughs> that's what it was. It's just like, and I thought I was the only person in the world as well getting it, which was worse. It's like, I can't go to a professional and tell them that I think I'm dying three times a day. They'll think I'm mad. This is just me. And then I went to... I was going to the art college and we had free psychotherapy there and I went there to a counsellor and they said, oh, that's called an anxiety attack. That's, uh, the fire alarm is going off, but there's no fire. And all he did was teach me. He said, when you're in a state of anxiety all the time, your breath is really shallow. So you're breathing from up here. And I noticed, I was like, <laughs> all the time. And all he did is he showed me, put your hand on your stomach and as much as possible, when you breathe in through the nose, and he said, feel your stomach expanding. And I'd never done it before in my life. And as soon as I started doing that, my anxiety was down by about 70%. I was giving myself drugs that are free in my body. That's basically it. The medication was there, present in my body, mm -hmm. through breathing. And it changed everything for me. Um, it sounds so simple, isn't it? And it, it, was, it was, but it was wonderful to discover that it sure. was so simple. Because it made anxiety feel normal. Yeah. Because that, like, if the solution, if, I won't say solution, but if something that alleviated it greatly was as simple as breathing, then I knew I'm not a freak. This is part of being a human being. Panic attacks are something everybody gets, and it's just a part of being human. But we don't talk about it because it's terrifying and a little bit embarrassing. Mm. And that's the only thing. So if breathing was the alleviation to it, it must be normal. Well, hopefully you were making progress, Blind Boy. I mean, we, we, we're now running meditation classes in primary schools, out in Myras, primary school, every child in the school does meditation, every year of every class is doing meditation. That's incredible. So from a very young age, they're learning that, oh, I can breathe, and they have their little 
their breathing exercises and they do this like, and they love it, they soak it up because they know it's so natural. So you missed out, we missed out on that maybe, but hopefully the new generation of kids. I, I unfortunately got, um, what, was I, what was I doing in school at seven? Uh, I, I, a nun took me aside and got a, 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 a jam jar. I was being bold, right? I was seven, I wasn't being bold, I was a child. I was a child. I, sh I shouldn't even say that to myself. I shouldn't even say I was being bold, you know what I mean? Because I was a child. I was doing whatever felt right at that point, and someone called that disruptive. But a fucking a nun got a jam jar full of water and said to me, that's your soul. I went, all right. <laughs> and then she, she went to a fucking pot of dirt, a pot of dirt, and threw it in there and said, that's your soul now because you've been bold all morning. And she said, that's not going to be clean again until you make her con uh, not what, what, your first confession in March. And then she told me what a confession was, and I'm like, you want me to get into an upright coffin with a stranger and tell him secrets? Yeah. <laughs> but I didn't have any... I, I, well, I'd say I'd have been better off if I got a bit of mindfulness, rather than the, so. the, the soul shaming. <laughs> um, one little question for you, Keith, right? When you're out on the pitch, I'm learning about sports now, I'm pure curious about sports. <laughs> Do you know why? I'm scared. Limerick is so rugby mad. And I know so little that I'm at the point where I don't want to be in a pub going, is that a try? Because <laughs> I'm at that level, but I don't want to do it because people think I'm taking the piss. But something I'd love to know is, so you're out there and you were describing there when um, you're not being mindful, okay? You're losing the run of yourself. Your negative thinking is starting to come in, right? Now, that's going to be apparent in your body, body language. Mm. Is there someone who has your back there, is there some type of coach who's watching you and they're like, Keith's head has gone up his arse and they can tell and they help? Yeah, no, we, we've got each other now on the field, which is something we wouldn't. So, so your other rugby players, your teammates will yeah. be looking at you and say... Yeah, so I, I'd often say with the position I play in the wing, I'd, I'd be linked with my full back and like midway through the game, I'd be like, man, I'm so not, I feel like a bag of shit. And he'd, he'd, again, it was like nearly asking for help. And yeah. he'd chat through, he's like, man, we've done this plenty of times. Just, you know, this, you're just fucking, it's your, it's your ego or it's just fucking chill a bit. Like, or he'd say, I've got, I've got your back, don't worry, don't worry about it, you know. And that's, and that's something where we've got into it. Like, we're on the field killing each other and we're playing with each other, but we, we have these... That's a lot of compassion and empathy yeah, we there, have, like. Yeah, we have, and the big thing... The big thing for us in rugby now is we're showing vulnerability. Like, you know, a lot of the, the teams I play with, it's all about being vulnerable now. Be yourself as fast as you can, and that's how we can all trust each other. As and opposed we, to pretending. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. when the shit hits the fan, and I know about you, and I'll come over to you, and I say, blind boy, you feel all right, and then you'll go, no, man, I feel like shit. And I'm like, it's all right, man, I feel like shit too, and we'll get through it together. So there's another person on the pitch, and you and that person almost have to have this relationship. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and that's, that's your linebacker, you said it was? Yes, fullback, fullback. Full yeah, yeah, but it's... But I'm sorry, lads. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's all, it's, it's all a communication thing. Yeah. Bro, like communication, like rugby, like things, things can be easier when you communicate. So like when you're feeling shit, you communicate. It, it helps, and... You know, the stuff that's on the field, and not, like they're, they're starting to relate in, in, in different ways. Because what it's reminding me of is, because uh, my context again is art, but like in a band, the bass player and the drummer have to have that relationship. 
So the bass player is playing bass, but if the bass player isn't listening to the drummer and the drummer alone, they have to look after each other. And if the bass player is listening to the singer, the bass player's fucked. And if the singer is listening to the bass, the singer has to be listening to the guitar, because that's the melody. So that's what I'm fascinated about there. It's, it's the team element of it. Because there there's creativity in sports. Mm. Like, I just don't understand this. You know what I mean? Hold on a second now. I've got some good, good questions. Keith, if the money was right, would you play for Leinster? <laughs> Not a chance. I cut, I cut both my legs off. <laughs> um, actually, on that subject, one thing... So the one thing I do know about rugby is Limerick is very unique in that rugby is, is a working class sport in Limerick, whereas if you say you like rugby up in Dublin, that's very, very, very posh. And even at Cork, it's kind of posh as well, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what's, what was that like as a rugby player to be like, I'm not from a posh background, playing in places where it, it's posh as standard? Yeah, so... I used to like underage, like Irish schools, and I'd go up and I'd play for Irish schools or Munster schools, and I'd go up and I'd be like, why are these fellas talking like that? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, I was just like, I, I, I wrote my book, like, I had serious imposter syndrome. Like, mm -hmm. I was like, what is going on here? Like, these people are so different, and I didn't feel, feel worthy because their confidence and stuff, I didn't feel mm -hmm. worthy. Or when I started to make it with Ireland, you're going, you're meeting all these people, and oh, I was like yeah imposter syndrome it was it's bizarre really like you know I, I'm, I, and I'm still not comfortable in it this is a question for you Declan can, I, can you ask Declan what preventative measures does he think athletes should be taking both before and after their careers to protect their mental health actually that's one both before and after before, after is what I'm fucking interested in because yeah. and th this could be one for yourself as well we talked about it there, myself and Keith had talked about it earlier. Your identity. You know. what the, like when you're not on the pitch anymore. Yeah. A lot of that work has to be done well in advance before they retire, and Keith is, is already invested in his career post-rugby. Yeah. Uh, and I know, I can remember Declan Kidney being a great advocate of that way back in the day when I was involved with Munster, that he really wanted to make sure that all the, the, the players were looking after their lives outside of rugby because there comes a time when you're no longer playing. So that... The, the preparation is throughout your career that you're getting ready so that when you do hang up your boots that there's more to life than just rugby and that's that's a big transition I mean there's a huge amount of work to, needing to be done in helping people trans make that transition you know in terms of their in terms of their mental health because and Keith was only explained to me earlier like that you know as you people here can imagine like Keith Earls you know he, he's the, the the superstar in Limerick you know but in a couple of years time when he's walking up O'Connell Street guys will say, oh, is that Keith? What used he do, do you know? So for, yeah. for, Keith, for Keith or for any guys who've been in that position, your whole identity is no longer what it used to be. So there's a huge strain on, you know, psychologically on your whole sense of self and your identity. And that has to be, that has to be coached and nurtured over the... It, it's too late to start the day you give up rugby. You, know, you have to start long before that. So the whole thing is to make sure you don't over-invest in your... Your, your, your e self-esteem. Yeah, your ego doesn't get over-invested in your identity as a rugby player. So, you know, Keith has a balanced life, so everything isn't about the rugby. And, 
so the person was asking before, during and after your career, you need to make sure you have a balanced sense of your, yourself, that if you overinvest everything, no more than students in the university here, if they invest everything yeah. in their academic success, mm-hmm. and then the QCA goes wallop up, for example, then they lose all sense of, of, of self-esteem again, because they've overinvested in one aspect of their identity. And, and if you do that, then everything balances on that. And if that goes, you're then left with nothing. So what, what I do for that, <clears throat> so for me, obviously, this plastic bag is a great fucking help. This plastic bag is blind by, then the plastic bag comes off, and tomorrow morning I'm arguing with the manager in Aldi. And I get to do that. It doesn't become, oh, there's that prick man arguing about the size of the carrots. I'm just, a, I'm a nobody doing it, and it's perfect, and it works for me. And this bag is literally how I can separate my two identities and how I cannot become the spectacle that I am on the internet or on telly or whatever. And I've always had a reasonable check on that, you know? But I forgot what I was gonna fucking say now because I started thinking about fucking carrots and LD. <laughs> <laughs> yes. What I always do to remind myself is, so like sometimes, like if, if I do something and I get praise, it can be very difficult to not get that praise and then go, you're fucking class, you're brilliant. Look at, look at this good review you got. Look at these good comments. You're, you're a great person now. I know that that's dangerous if I start feeding into that because if I feed into the positive critique I get, then the negative critique hurts twice as much. So what I have to do instead is focus on what I call my intrinsic worth. So there's a, there's a worth inside of me and it's no greater or lesser than anyone else's worth. What I always compare it to is, um, do you know the way all babies are class? Every single baby is utterly amazing. Every baby is beautiful. They all radiate with this wonderful, perfect babiness that you could never weigh up against another baby. It's just, they're fucking class. Every fucking one of them, they're amazing, they're brilliant. That to me is intrinsic worth. All of us are born what that is really is what makes babies so class is it's just life. All a baby wants is I want to f- feed, I want to go for a shit, uh, I want to have a cuddle or a laugh, and if I'm sad, I want to cry. And that's it. And a baby doesn't care about what anyone thinks of it. A baby's not comparing itself to other babies. A baby isn't thinking, I'm going to buy myself a nice class hat next week and everyone's going to think I'm brilliant. They don't have it. It's pure, the ultimate needs that you have as a human being, and that's intrinsic worth. And every fucking single one of us was born with that beautiful thing, right? It never leaves us. We still have that wonderful baby worth that you're born with, but what happens is then you get to fucking school, you're three years of age, all of a sudden, you're comparing yourself to other children, you start to formulate a view of yourself, I'm better than that person, but I'm worse than this person, Look at their class hair, look at their shit hair. And then the toxicity comes in. And then the negative emotions come in. Then you start acting out with anger when you feel insecure. But that little baby never leaves. So that's what I always try and focus on. I have this intrinsic worth that everyone has and it's no greater or lesser than anyone else. And if I can live my day trying to get value from that, no aspect of my behavior defines my worth. Do you get me? So that's one thing I really focus on, to, to be fucking human and maintain happiness, I suppose you'd call it, but I don't even believe in the phrase, can, um, can you be happy? I don't think happiness is a thing that you can achieve. 
Like if you say to yourself, if I do this, I will be happy. If I can just get this, I will be happy. That's harsh shit. I don't even think happiness exists. I think what, what, what I'm searching for isn't happiness, meaning. If I engage in something that gives me personal meaning, part of that meaning is actually quite a bit of suffering and sadness. Like, what gives me meaning? Fucking writing a book. I love writing a book. But part of that process contains quite a lot of pain, quite a lot of failure, quite a lot of stress, quite a lot of worry. But when I get to the end of a book and I'm finished, I feel really sad. The end process of having it done or selling it, that fucking feels like shit. That actually feels empty. It feels like death. The joy is the process of doing it. And that's not happiness. It's meaning. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I, rel- I relate to that. Be- like, I- it took me a long time to win. win. I was playing for Ireland. I missed out on two championships with Ireland. Uh, they won it in 2014 and 2015, and I missed it being injured. But as you said there, the, and then we won it. We won the Grand Slam in 2018, and I remember being on the field, and I was like, this is what I've wanted, and I've achieved it. And, and I feel empty. And I feel empty. But what I, but what I loved was... I, had my, I always promised my kids that we'd walk around the field one day with a trophy and that's what we got to do. But mm-hmm. I felt empty that sometimes the journey is just the, the better journey. part. That's the, the crack journey. The journey. Is the, yeah, and yeah. the journey as well, it's not all happiness. Yeah. The journey is pain, suffering, rejection, doubt. Sure, that's what life is like. I'm like convinced you, you can't get success without suffering. Everyone's yeah. going to suffer no matter how happy you are how much money you have, you're going to suffer at one stage. Yeah. When, you're, when one of your cats dies, you're going to suffer. You're mm-hmm. going to be sad. Like, you know, yeah. something small. A hundred bet with yeah. you, lads. I fucking yeah. lost a cat, lads, in 2015, and I'm still not over it. Yeah, yeah. And, and everyone, and, you know, some people are better at dealing with suffering, like, you know, and yeah, but sometimes, sometimes it's just all about the journey, all about the process. And sometimes when you hit your goal, it's kind of like, you're sad. <laughs> you're sad. You're sad. Yeah. Because it, the thing is, is it, the, the, sometimes meeting a goal that you've worked at reminds, uh, it reminds me of death. That's what it feels like. It reminds me of this is the end, and I want to think about the next thing. But just on the subject of suffering, one thing I try to do is I try to differentiate between necessary suffering and avoidable suffering, right? So necessary suffering is there is suffering in, in being alive, and that's, so, you're gonna get rejected. You're gonna be disappointed by people. You're gonna disappoint yourself. People you fucking love are gonna die. That's a, f- you can't escape that, lads. Every, every, people you love are gonna fucking die, and it's tough. That's the unavoidable suffering of existence. I had my first panic attack thinking about that. I remember, Did you? yeah, when I, was, I was 12 years of age. I remember I was in my primary school uniform, and I was sitting down, I was watching Hey Arnold or something on TV, and I remember looking at the fireplace, and my mother had a little, little dog ornament, and I remember looking at it, and I'm like, when I die, I'll never see that again. And then I was like, oh my God, when I die or my parents die, I will never yeah. see them again. What, what's going on? And next thing I just started. Like, yeah. like when you're, it's crazy thinking, like, I don't know if it's sick thinking, but like, your parents die in the morning, and I know you think you've lost your father, have you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like something you, you've been around so long, when you die. But that's the challenge 50, of being yeah, alive. Yeah, 50, in 100 years' time, or 200 years' time, 
what were you like? That's what freaks me out. But what I what I find with that is, so ju- so there's there's that's the suffering of existence that you can't avoid, right? Mm-hmm. Here's the thing about that type of suffering, and I, I so my 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 dad died when I was uh, nineteen, no twenty, and it broke my fucking heart. But the amount of meaning that I got from his death, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. From all that fucking pain and suffering. I'm a di- I'm, I am who I fucking am. I'm a different human being because my dad died. And I don't even believe in heaven or hell. So I have to accept that he's fully gone. But one thing I do believe in is rippling. So my ma will hear me talking on the radio or whatever. And she'll say, you sounded like your dad. You sounded just like your dad. So he's not dead. Like he is. But his mannerisms, his way of thinking, his ideas... They ripple and they live on in me, they live on in my brother, they live on in anyone he's touched. So there's no, so I get great meaning in that and it's shaped who I am. But to the topic of unnecessary suffering that I was talking about. So this is the necessary suffering of existence, we can't avoid it. Necessary suffering is painful, but it always has fucking meaning. Mm-hmm. Unnecessary suffering. This is, um, so if I go for a jog, I go for a jog up along the river behind the college two, three times a week. If, I br- if I'm going for a jog and I brush off uh, a plant that I have an allergic reaction to, right? So this brushes off my leg and it gives me a little rash. That impact is the unavoidable suffering of existence. I can't, I can't avoid getting a sting off a nettle or a, or a lash of a plant. That's the unavoidable suffering of existence. However, if I get home and I decide to start scratching at it, and now I have this wound from a plant, and I'm scratching at it, and now it's bleeding, and now it won't heal. That's the, av- what is that one? That's the avoidable, that's the avoidable suffering of existence. I'm creating that pain. A triggering event has happened, which is unavoidable. I'm creating that fucking pain, and it's the same with mental health. So if I get a disappointment in life, or if I get rejected by someone, and the meaning that I subscribe to that event, if the meaning to that is excessively fucking negative, I'm scratching that wound. Mm. I've now created all that pain. And the thing is with that pain, it can be never ending and you'll find fuck all meaning in it. If, like, if, if, if you're doing a fucking match and you make a bollocks of something, and then for the next two fucking months, all you're doing is thinking about, I made a bollocks of this, I'm a terrible person, I'm this, it's gonna happen again. Nothing good comes from that. Yeah, it's, it's fucking worthless shit. Yeah, and I agree. Yeah, and like it's weird and not for, like I'd be a fan of law of attraction. Like you know, I'd be a fan yeah. of you know you're gonna think negative, it's gonna happen, and you know, and that's why I'm all kind of like in 2018. Um, I I did a bit of work with Keith Barry. You know, it was easy, and I know I did a bit bit of work with Deck, but I did. A, bit of work with Keith Barry, like I didn't know how to visualise, we were all like, you was know, this hypnosis stuff or? No, he didn't hypnotise me, he was just, you know, it was, it was again, it was breathing and then I'd visualise, and I'd visualise games, I'd visualise getting man of the match, I'd visualise lifting trophies and 2018 was the best season I've ever had in my life and I'd, and I spoke to Keith about it and I told him, he's like, what would you get, like to get out of this personally? Um, and I'd visualise myself getting player of the year for Munster, I'd visualise myself play, getting player of the year for Ireland. At the end of the season, the two of them things happened. But 
yeah, people might think it's mad, like, but maybe when I was writing it or I was thinking about it so much that my behaviours were just guiding me that way rather than law of attraction, you know what I mean? But that's where I <clears throat> that's yeah. where I go with it because like I feel similar way. I don't go full law of attraction, but mm. when my mental health is in check, like here's the big one for me. So if I let my mental health go to shit, right? And an opportunity comes. So the thing with my job, like I'm self-employed, everything is about opportunity. I'll get a phone call. Do you want to have a go at this? If my mental health is bad and I view the world from a, a threat point of view, I'm going to turn it down. Mm -hmm. There's lots of opportunities will come to me. If my mental health is bad, I will say, I won't be able to do that. No, 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 no. If my mental health is good, then I'll say, fuck it, yeah, I'll give it a lash. What's the worst that can happen? And when I do that, all of a sudden, opportunities come, and I'm taking them, I fail, I don't give a fuck about failure because my self-esteem is in check, and all of a sudden, success has happened out of that. But if I'm in a bad way, I can see myself, self-sabotage. Yeah. Self-sabotage, mm. I can either self-sabotage, or I can try my best, and it depends on where I am from, it, from an emotional point of view. That's why there needs to be an art, <coughs> An art psychologist. That's why there needs to be a psychologist for artists. But I don't think there's enough money made by artists for the government to start going. It's the same <laughs> principles, whether you're artist or rugby player or whatever you are in life, the same principles that apply. And what you've been describing, you know, even when you talk about babies uh, earlier, I was just thinking, well, the difference between a baby and uh, people here, for example, is uh, that they don't have an ego. Yeah. So the ego is the big, uh, the, the big elephant that we all need to deal with. And mm -hmm. so and it intrigues me. Because and is the ego our perception of self, our perception of ourselves? No, the ego is basically that part of us that makes, makes meaning and purpose in our lives. Yeah. So we develop it over time. But the ironic thing about our ego is that we start off with no ego. We have we our id. We develop over 10 or 20 years, we develop a really big ego. And lo and behold, when we get a fully developed ego, what do we have to do? We have to let go of our ego. Uh, so it's, this, it's, it's very ironic, it's a very cruel twist of fate, but you, the only way you can progress and mature is letting go. And there are the moments you've described is where your ego doesn't come into it, mm -hmm. then you can move on. But people get too attached to their ego, and if they do that, they get stuck. Uh, but the little baby has no ego, and that's why they're so, so just comfortable and at ease in, in the world. And the idea is to try and get back to that state, having come through this whole journey of growing up. I have three little girls at home, and like we were talking about babies there and egos, like whether I play a good game or a shit game, I walk home. And they don't give a fuck. And they don't give a shit. Yeah. They're just like, they're yeah. hugging me. They love me no matter yeah. what's going on. And they, I'm just... I'm just dead to them, like, you know what I mean, Dave? But part of, of your journey and my journey as well is, so they're your little daughters, right? But also, little tiny Keith was that as well. And for little tiny Keith to also give big Keith the hug, going, I don't give a fuck if you're in Monster Rub, I don't give a shit, man. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Because no, yeah. That, and that's what all of us have to do, and I have to go to little tiny blind boy to go, I don't give a shit about your books. And give a fuck. Do you know what I mean? And that's the, that's the wonderful journey of life, I think. The inner child. And the inner child, that's where playfulness comes from. Like, when I'm writing and I describe that feeling of flow, that's my inner child. That's me when I was two playing with Lego and I didn't care about whether it was good or bad. 
And when you're out on the pitch at the top of your game, I'm guessing it's the same thing. It's your little child inside going, I fucking love movement. I love this. Something about this is, is, is crack. And I don't care if it's good or bad. And then lo and behold, you do something good. Yeah, it's like, it's like when, you're, when you're playing soccer or playing rugby when you're a young fella. Like, like up until I was a professional, even my first couple of games with Munster, it was some crack. I was like, this is some crack. And That's the, what I want to ask you. Yeah, and then it's the interference of having a shit game and then the media are coming yeah. after you. And then you're like, this has ruined my life. This is shit crack. So I'm guessing with yourself... <clears throat> so when I was, we'll say three or four, I started figuring, figuring out I'm handy at drawing, I like music. I'm guessing for you, you're three, four, you start learning how to walk and run, and it's like, this is crack. Soccer, whatever you're doing outside in the field, this is unbelievable crack, and I love it. Yeah. Is that true? Yeah, yeah, it is. And so at what point of, of that, at what point in your career do you have a bad game or whatever, and then all of a sudden, you start to experience feelings yeah. of, I am a bad person yeah, because when, I am a bad game. When I became a professional rugby player, yeah. like, as I said, there the whole way up, like, I remember like, at playing schools in the Senior Cup like in Tom and Park when you're 17, 18, and there's a couple of thousand people there, and you're all week, you're like, I can't wait for this. Absolutely yeah. can't wait for this. And then you go on and you're playing for Munster in Tom and Park, something you wanted to do all your life. And you might have had a bad game and you know the media are coming after you and next thing you're in the cubicle before a kickoff thinking I wish I was, I wish I was in Banlanti there with the boys fucking yeah. hanging around fucking drinking cans or whatever like you yeah. know it was, and that's happened I, I went out I've had freedom and fun and playfulness yeah exactly is and when you become you're worried because everyone in the audience is if yeah, everyone watching the game is going, is going to have an opinion and you're going to get their opinion like whether it's abuse on the sideline and you know, we talk about not looking at social media, but it's going to get there somewhere. Someone yeah. will send on a WhatsApp. Look at that fella's after saying <laughs> about you. And you're like, yeah, leave me alone. It's my fuck. I don't need to hear what people are saying about yeah, me online. Yeah, exactly. And like I played, like I, I was 21. I was quite young. I went on the Lions tour, which is the best players from the four countries, England, Ireland, Scotland, the Wales. And I went on that Lions tour and it was, it was the... It was the best and the worst thing that happened to me. I went out my first game, and I mean to say, if you have seen someone, I had the worst game in my life. And I was playing for the Lions, and I was like, this is hell. Then the media came after me, and then it was just fucking a downward spiral, and I hated rugby for years, and it was like that, that yeah, I couldn't get out that, that thinking that, you know, I was, I, was, I was always stood out my whole career, like as a young flag coming up through, and even my first season, Munster, and then, that Lions tour, that one game, like derailed me for Jesus five or six Christ. years. I didn't know how to to manage my emotions. Like Fuck that. me! And I, I hated rugby, and it was to a point where I talked to my father, and he told my wife, "I'm giving this up because this is ruining my life because of who I play for." This thing that I love I is now a source of pain. It's, yeah, it's because I care about Munster so much. I care about Ireland. I just. I can't get away from it, and it's not enjoyable anymore. And where are you now with that shit when you play? I don't care about it anymore. I, I don't care about rugby, which, which, is, which is weird, because rugby is what I do. It's not who I, who I am. I prefer Keith the human. Um, I, I stopped caring about rugby. No, it doesn't mean I, I always 
put in the effort. The emotional like, attachment, yeah, yeah, the, exactly. the unhealthy emotional attachment. Yeah, exactly, the unhealthy. Is when, when Anthony Foley passed away we, in 2016, like when he first took over, we had, a, we had a horrendous season. We were just trying to qualify for Europe, never mind trying to win it. And the abuse that man got, um, and then when he passed away, like everyone was saying, it didn't really, like rugby didn't matter. Like, you know, there's a wife and there's two yeah. sons are after losing their father. Like rugby, and even talking to Paul O'Connell now, like it, it's irrelevant really in, in real life rugby. Like obviously, yeah, there's people's like livelihoods and stuff, but yeah, I just go out now and as I said there, if I prepare and I still play shit, I can deal with that now. Like, you mm -hmm. know, whereas years ago, I just thought talent was enough. Mm -hmm. I go out and I play a shit game. Um, and I'd beat myself up because I was like, oh, why, why did you, f you didn't knee properly this week, you took a shock put a training, but if you can tick all the boxes and then you go out and you lose, um, then you, you, you can live with that. But yeah, it, it's, it's not my life anymore, even though it, I'm still in it and I'm enjoying it, but Keith Earl is the human is, is more important than Keith Earl is the rugby player. I'm gonna open the questions up to the audience. Can we have the house lights up a tiny bit? And we're, we've got a roving mic. You can pass the mic around if you like, like a, like a little collection box, but you put a voice into it instead. Mike. Thanks, Flying Boy. Oh, yeah. um, I have a question about breathing. So all three of you mentioned the importance of breath work. Um, so obviously in your personal life, that's helped you, but uh, I suppose, Keith, how has that helped you through sports, but also how has that helped you uh, mentally as well in both aspects? Yeah, I've gone, I've, I've, there's, there's a load of different breathing techniques. I have a breathing technique for, for when I'm training and I have a breathing technique for when I have anxiety and then I have a breathing technique when I just want to be still. Like last night I, I did a breathing session and I said to Bly Boy, the only way I could describe it is, you know, I don't know, like, it's a bit dark again. Like, I've, I've watched two of my grandparents die, and, you know, when they, when they give them morphine to leave them die in a relaxed state, but the nurse is saying, still talk to them because you're conscious. I did breathing last night, and that's what, it, that's what it felt like. It felt like... It felt like I was just being it. I wasn't even in, in my body, like it was weird. And I know, I know I'm probably freaking people out, but you know, when you go back and you, you do your research and you look like breeding thousands of years, it's, mm -hmm. it's trying to be like all different kinds of breeding. And even the rosary, man, the rosary started off as nuns doing breeding exercises. It did. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> it is. It's just different, like, like Declan Oil, like getting after different parts of the nervous system where you want to relax or get the adrenaline up um yeah it's 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 the best thing i do your breathing it controls everything um, i'm definitely going to start like i'm like a, a breathing virgin um in that I, ju I just do the regular breathing that i'm doing now and then like just basic meditation but listening to the two lads tonight like i'm going to start getting into more advanced breathing yeah and start breathing with my arse i mean certainly <laughs> <laughs> It's, and to keep it simple, I mean, the breath work is, is so basic. I mean, first of all, there's nobody in this room that isn't breathing. So we all have to breathe. Uh, and it's a very simple thing I to do. I brought the corpse of Ronnie Drew with me. <laughs> <laughs>
But simple, what they call diaphragmatic breathing, it's just breathing into your belly. It's just a simple little exercise. Breathe into your belly because most of us get panicked and anxious because yeah. we're breathing up here. So just even a simple thing of being able to breathe into your belly, it's so basic. Mm -hmm. And I'm surprised, particularly asthmatics who never even learned to yeah. do diaphragmatic breathing. But the and that's the one that, I said earlier, you just feel your tummy expanding. Yeah. Uh, but, but what it does, blind by, the, the, why breathwork is central to all these different practices is because it, it's the one thing that's in the here and now. Mm -hmm. All right, so the, there's the one thing you can be sure of if you want to be in the present moment is to check your breath because that's mm -hmm. always present. Mm -hmm. So that's why it becomes an anchor. It's a place to come every time. If you ever get panicked or freaked out on anything, the one thing to come back to is your breath because it'll always be present. Mm -hmm. You can't be breathing in the future or in the past. So mm -hmm. that's why it works. And, uh, and it's part and parcel of all psychological therapies. Will, mm -hmm. you know, they'll come back to doing good breath work uh, and meditation. I've been doing for 30, 35 years, and uh, I, I would say that it's probably the most important thing I've ever learned in my life. What would you say to someone, <clears throat> someone who's never thought about breath work at all and you're just hearing it here tonight, what would be a good first step? The first step would be one or two minutes just of sitting and paying attention to your breath. Just notice that you're breathing. Because so a basic just, mindfulness meditation, yeah, yeah. basically. But yeah. my, mindfulness is breath work. When, we, yeah. when you're talking about breath work, mindfulness is, is central to that. Mm -hmm. Yoga is a, a, another evolution of, of that. Of course, yeah. They're all part of the same system. You know, breath work comes from, the whole focus is, comes from Eastern traditions. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and yoga and breath work, pranayama, they're, 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 uh, ujjayi, that, all these practices come out of yoga tradition. Uh, and they're simply ways of coming into the here and now. And if we can all be in the here and now, we're, we'll be okay. Mm -hmm. It's to give it time as well, Dick, isn't it? Like, it's, it's yeah. like going to the gym. Oh, practice. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not, you're not going to get better in a week. 100%. Yeah. Absolutely. We, we, I have people who say, oh, I did a mindfulness course. Yeah. And they did it five years ago. I'm saying, yeah, but what are you doing now? If you don't, I mean, you know, if you don't keep it up, keep yourself no more than, you know, keep, keeps fit by keep training and then he can play. But it, once he stops training, his fitness is gone and that's the end of it. You have to keep practicing. Because a block, sometimes when I, when I speak to people who've had a go at, at mindfulness or meditation, some people stop because they... They hear people speaking about it, and they and like we'll be speaking about it, and it sounds incredible. You're like going, "Fuck me, give me some of that." <laughs> but when you go at it with that attitude, as if it's a drug, as if it's something you take, often your first attempts are gonna, like I guarantee you, my first ever meditation, I did not get to the, a place of mindfulness. I, at best, I would have achieved slightly better calm than being in a panic attack. <laughs> but it took time, like going to the gym. It was about three weeks before I can meditate and get to that lovely calm space. So you do have to build it up. And if you begin doing it, and it's natural to be thinking, I'm shit at this, this isn't working. That's actually the first barrier. Mm -hmm. And then the key is you're breathing and you go, I notice that my mind is telling me I'm shit at this. So I'm not going to react to this. What I'm going to do is I'm going to notice it and it's going to pass me by like a fucking leaf on the river. And then when you get to that, that's when you get into that fucking mad cam. You know? Yeah. Like, I've experienced incredible stuff. And, and I was meditating there down, behind here, down by the river. And I'd been meditating for about three months straight. And I came out of the meditation and woke up. Not woke up, but it kind of feels like waking up. And the first thing I saw was a nettle. I've never experienced so much empathy for another thing in my life. I saw this fucking nettle, and I felt like it was a brother. 
<laughs> but, but seriously, that, that's what it was able to do to me. I had that little five seconds of a deep, genuine understanding of everything in the universe is connected. I don't know what it is, but this nettle here is so... I love this nettle, and this nettle loves me. And it was a beautiful thing to happen because I didn't control it. It just happened. And then afterwards, it was just... It was beautiful. It was like how people describe... Uh, ayahuasca or DMT or something like that is just, it happened in Plassey for five seconds without needing to take anything. So we're going to call it a night now, right? Uh, thank you so much to my wonderful guests. Thank you, Keith. Thank you, Declan. Um, I want to... I want to thank Keith for your fucking, for your honesty. Um, I was terrified of doing this tonight because, like I said, I'm like, fuck it, what if I say something like linebacking when referring to rugby, which I did. <laughs> but it was wonderful that me and you were talking about separate things, but me doing art and you doing rugby, we were like right in the middle. It's the same fucking shit, man. Yeah. We're still both following our passions and the challenges are the exact same. And then for Declan, a fair play to you for just sitting back and being a psychotherapist <laughs> and kind of... <laughs> You just sat back and supervised. You're like, I'm not going to intervene right. in this, which was absolutely beautiful because I wasn't expecting that. So <laughs> fair play to Declan for that. That was wonderful. It was like, like everyone's granddad. Thank you. Thank you so much to Keith Earls and Dr. Declan Ahern for that fantastic chat. It was gorgeous to step outside of my comfort zone, to challenge my assumptions and to challenge my limitations around something like rugby. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed that. So, I'll catch you next week. I'll be back with... I don't know what I'll be back with. Maybe a hot take. We'll see what the crack is. Right now, I'm currently... I mean, I'm over in Spain writing. I have to get uh, several thousand words from my head and put them onto a page. Which is something I thoroughly enjoy. I'll catch you next week. In the meantime, enjoy the long evenings... If you see a cat, say hello. If you see a dog, rub a dog. Rub a dog, but only if the dog wants to be rubbed. Not like a strange dog, not like a dog you don't know. Even though some dogs you don't know, you reckon, oh, I could rub that dog, he looks like he's ready for a rub. I'm always cautious around that. So, if you are going to be rubbing a dog, know what you're doing. But once you have been given that permission by the dog to rub him, enjoy it. Enjoy that beautiful dog-human connection. <laughs> Alright, I'll catch you next week. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.